Hello, everyone. Hello. We have to say something very special to our special little co-host over there, Corinne. What? We have to say something special to you. Oh, oh, shit. This comes out the day after my birthday. (laughs) I was like, why? What's wrong? Am I in trouble? (laughs) Yeah. It's actually, we're kicking you off. Sorry to tell you while on the podcast. Bon voyage, everyone. I've won the lottery and I'm going to crawl into the woods now. (laughs) And join Bigfoot. That is your birthday present from me. (laughs) I like how I win the lottery and then I leave civilization. It should be the opposite. Uh, No, it kind of makes sense to... And then you like bury all these holes around your property in the woods and then dig or dig a hole and bury your money. Treasure. Yes, guys, it's Corinne's birthday. This is her birthday episode. Yep. And for my birthday, which when this comes out will be yesterday... I'm going to, uh, up in Ipswich, there's a property called the Crane Estate. It's this, like, big mansion that was built, I believe, in the 1800s, and they host a Roaring Twenties lawn party. So that is what I'm doing, and I'm so freaking stoked. It's going to be so fun. I'm yeah, so excited. Yeah, they teach, like, swing dancing and the Charleston, and you wear, like, your little uh, oh, Mary Janes. So fun. so fun. I can't wait to see photos. I wish I could be there. I bought myself a birthday present. What'd you get? I've always wanted a picnic basket for a very long time, so I bought myself a nice picnic basket that has, like, three slots for wine. It's official. It's a big picnic basket. You'll have to send me photos. I will. Uh, This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. Uh, That's Corinne. Birthday girl Corinne. I'm Sabrina. And uh, the ghost is somewhere. Maybe in this episode. We don't know. Maybe. Ghosts are everywhere. I was just in Portland, this Portland, Maine, this mm-hmm. past weekend visiting my friend Talia. And we did the most amazing cliff seaside walk. Where <laughs> were we? Oh, my God. Scarborough, Maine? I think I sent you the picture of the, the yeah. house that I was like, this you is should my dream house. You should know where your future home is. I was in some neck, some something, something neck, neck point. Something. Mm-hmm. I'm doing really well with remembering where I want to live. <laughs> That's okay. You have a photo of the house and you'll find it again. I'll find it again. But anyway, so, oh wait, I found it. I found it. I just zoomed in on the maps. All you need to know is the name of the family that lives there and then you're going to start sending them letters and then they'll move out. We were hoping that the water would come in and that we wouldn't be able to get back to the beach and we'd be like, oh no, we must take shelter in one of these large mansions on the coast. <laughs> But my the point of me telling the story was we were walking back, like returning the way we came on the loop. And mm-hmm. Talia goes, you know, I hang out with you a lot and I've never experienced anything paranormal. How often does stuff happen? Is it every day? And I was like, no, it's not every day. That's not how it works. It, no, I, I can't plan it. No, no. Uh, although I do love when people tell us their stories and like just – because we're the ghost girls. People just are always like, oh, you're the ghost girls? We have to tell you everything that happened. Uh, should we talk about how our friend yeah. Caitlin, dearest friend mm-hmm. Princess Caitlin, who loves castles, just didn't tell us a major story that happened in yes. her life. And we only found out when she was telling it to everyone at her bridal shower. Yes. And so, you and I turned and looked at each other and pointed and just went, oh. And then we yelled at her, how dare you not tell us? How dare you? And then she said she was too scared. Okay, so what happened? So, well, first of all, Corinne and I have seen a lot of each other the past few weeks, which is great. I love it. Mm-hmm. But now I feel like so far away from you again. Anyway, we're at our friend Caitlin 
her bridal shower. This is now two weeks ago by the time this comes out. And we're sitting there and I can't even remember well, they were playing like the wedding shower game where the couple answer, answers questions about each other. Anyway, they're sitting there talking, they answer a question and Caitlin starts telling the story about how her and her fiance just moved into a new place in Venice Beach, California. And they were sitting there watching TV and apparently it used to be old military housing. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting there, they're watching TV and all of a sudden their Alexa starts talking and starts detailing an entire basically Wikipedia page of this general and detailing in extreme detail how this general died in war. And they are convinced that this is the ghost that has yeah. haunt, it now haunts their 100%. apartment and lived there at one point. They didn't say, hey, Alexa, Nothing. tell me about General Nicholas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't think of a name yeah she knows the name we just forget the name yeah the story but that is that to me is so wild for them to just be sitting there and then their alexa going off and not just saying like oh i don't know i feel like most of the time it would be music or saying sorry i didn't get that or whatever yes it was a full-on like hey here's who you need to know about full details too and it wasn't just like basic this is where he's from, yada, yada. It was detailing his military record and his death. And you know Caitlin and Austin were just holding on to each other, too scared to go to the Alexa. With like, Carol. Oh, he's probably standing right next to the speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. It's so, so scary. scary. But so cool. And yeah. also, how amazing that they move in. The place now, we think, is definitely haunted. But mm-hmm. so many people live in their houses. Most people live in homes, and if those homes are paranormal, they never find out who it is. They only speculate. But immediately upon moving in, this ghost is like, hey, here's my name. Here's what's up. Here's my history. Now mm-hmm. let's get to know a little bit about you. It's uh, a little scary. If I mean, technology in general, when it starts to talk to you, freaks me out. Speaking of technology, have you watched that new documentary on Netflix? No. What is it? It's called The Great Hack. I have no idea what it is. What's it about? Oh, my God, it's about Cambridge Analytica and about their involvement in all of these different cases. The uh, most recent election we had here, a Brexit, a ton of other things that have happened like throughout the world and other countries. And basically their involvement on collecting people's uh, data and creating profiles and trying to sway people one way or another. Oh, I hate it. I hate it so much. Yeah. I hate it so much too. And it's so crazy and it's so, so scary because you're looking at this and you're like, holy crap. They have so much information on us. Yes. And then I was also thinking about it. I feel, I feel both ways because I found myself, part of me definitely wants to pull Ron Swanson and like (laughs) burn everything and no one can have any info on me, don't have my address, whatever. But then another part of me, if I get an ad on Instagram that's so, not related to me, I get almost insulted. I'm like, <laughs> why don't you know me? It's like, you don't even know me. Oh my gosh. You're in the fight with your, your data collection on your phone. My FBI agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that reminds me though. Okay. So I've been listening to a ton of, ton of podcasts just because I can't consume enough about serial killers for work. But anyway, there's this one podcast called To Live and Die in LA and it is so good. Have you listened to it? Well, it reminds me of that documentary because 
in the podcast, which is about um, Adaya Shabani, who's an actress who went missing and was later found dead. And they they ended up taking the data from this guy's phone. I won't ruin it because people should listen. But they ended up taking data point from this guy's phone and they could track every single movement by the second where he went, how long yeah, he stayed there. Yeah, basically every like 14 seconds it would yes, update. So they knew exactly where he was and how long he stopped at each location, yes. give or take 10, 15 seconds. Yeah, but which is one, terrifying, but also I'm so glad that that exists and that's real. Right, because for the purpose of solving true crime, something that you and I don't intend to ever be involved in a case, hopefully ever, that no, yeah. involves that. And definitely not as the suspect's. Right. So for us, we're like, oh my gosh, that's so great. But also if you think about it, it's so terrifying because if it gets into the wrong hands, someone could stalk you and know exactly where you are always. Oh God, I hope that doesn't happen to anyone. So it's like, oh, don't take your phone with you. But then what if there's an emergency and you do need need your your phone? phone. Yeah. Ugh. Technology is crazy, but it is doing good. It has pros (sighs) and cons. Everything has pros and cons. Which also similar to, okay, well, I have so many podcasts to recommend. I wrote them all down because I need to tell people. But um, Joseph D'Angelo case with the DNA, mm-hmm. and there's a podcast about that now. It's called The Man in the Window. Yes, I've listened to that one too. Man in the Window, so good. So there's this one, I think it's episode three, and I was driving home at like 9 p.m. from work, and it was pitch black, so dark. And there's a part where they play the recording where he called one of his victims and left a recording, like a left of he was like on the line and they recorded the call and he's just whispering. He's like, I'm gonna kill you. It is so terrifying. He's a monster. I will say, so I really liked that podcast, but they did make me angry. I think it was their second episode. They had credited the police with giving the Joseph D'Angelo the name Golden State Killer which mm-hmm. Michelle McNamara had actually done. But then uh, they did correct themselves like on the seventh episode. So right. I was mad at them for a little bit because I was like, you got that wrong. But right. they came back and, and gave her credit where it was due. I do like that they focused a lot on the victims and they gave them a voice. I really appreciate yeah. that. I know. That was what it was so crazy because you'd never heard. And you hear from Bonnie. She's on the podcast. So if anyone's familiar with that case, the Golden State Killer, you'll know that there's a lot – there was a a lot of talk about uh, his relationship with this woman, Bonnie, where he was just not a good suitor for her. And so she was like, next. But he would reference her name on occasion when committing these crimes. And so for the first time, at least in what I've heard and seen, you actually get to see or hear Bonnie. Yeah, which is incredible. So incredible. Also, with the DNA stuff, there's this other case, and it's called uh, – I can't remember. I, I'm not done the podcast, but there's a podcast called Bearbrook, and they caught the killer also using DNA. It's like the second ever case that they caught the guy with this, but I haven't finished the podcast. But basically, it's the story of um, they found these barrels with bodies in it, like two bodies in it, and then 15 years later, 300 feet away, they found another barrel with two bodies in it. And that that had been there for 15 years. And then there's all these different stories. This killer was like traveling all over the U.S. and just committing all these acts of murder and crime. And he would steal and kidnap people. And no one knew that these people were missing. And the people, the victims are still, a lot of them are unidentified. 
but it's really good. And okay, last one because we. I'm literally on. If you see my eyes have darted (laughs) over to the side, I'm no longer looking at you because I'm searching Bearbrook and I'm subscribing. It's really good. And then the last one I'll recommend, and I know we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about in this episode, so we'll get into our stories. But it's called The Clearing, and it's actually I think it was number one uh, podcast on the charts right now. And it's new, so there's only three episodes out. And it's about the daughter of Edward Edwards, Edward Wayne Edwards, that serial killer. Oh. And she basically, and it, the reason I started listening to it is because it's very similar to the concept of Prodigal Son, the show I'm working on. And basically, when she was in her 30s, she started having these flashes of memories that she had repressed. And she started to realize that her father had shown her and talked to her about his murders. Oh. <gasps> When she was younger and she called the police on him and got him arrested. Oh my God. Oh, full chills. I know. I know. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. Oh man. I mean, I love doing this podcast, but also I wish we didn't have to record right now because now I want to just go (laughs) listen to that immediately. I know. Well, these, okay, the four I just recommended, I, I binged probably all in a week because it was so consuming i'd listen in the car ride to work back home from work and then i'd be sitting at home like making dinner or doing something and i'd be listening to it again like i couldn't stop so good and i I really do enjoy episodic podcasts too although we are not one (laughs) that's okay we gotta mix it up yeah yeah god mix it up okay i'm so excited for this topic and i also it's gonna be a long one we have a lot of fun it's gonna be a long one because both of us warned each other in the beginning before we started recording we said hey this is a really long one for us we both discovered that so to give people an idea usually when we we try to aim around five to six pages to not to not be overly crazy and make this a three-hour long podcast correct but both of us were already at 10 pages when we (laughs) thought to look and so there's so much more I want to write. So much <gasps> more. I know. I, yeah, I feel like we must these, limit ourselves. These two stories that we just picked could have their own podcast just entirely, like a six episode podcast just about them. Absolutely. And actually, what I chose does have numerous podcasts about it. That's true. Oh, yeah. And it's a good time to talk about B&Bs because when I think about B&Bs, I feel like it's kind of like the summertime and mm-hmm. especially fall. I think of bed and breakfast in the fall because being from Vermont, that's when all the leaf peepers come up and stay at the little leaf bed and breakfast. Peepers. And like, yeah, that's what the people that's who want to see leaf the foliage peeper. are called. They're called leaf peepers. It's like a peeping tom, but for leaves. Yeah. People say it kind of negatively like, oh, yeah. the leaf peepers are here. Now there's traffic, meaning there's like five cars versus two. <laughs> But I think it's a cute name. And I, like I think it's also name. funny that people say leaf peepers and it's supposed to be kind of negative because it sounds cute. It does sound cute. Also, you know what I noticed? This is episode 102 and our very, very first episode ever of this podcast, we did uh, Haunted Hotels. And I feel like this is a nice little moment of us kind of reboot, rebirthing and, you know... <laughs> Spreading our legs and pushing out another one <laughs> in a different way. It's in the a different second way. child. With a little so. twist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No epidural this time. Oh, my God. My mom didn't have an epidural for me. And actually, 
sorry, we shouldn't talk about, we don't need to talk about my mom's <laughs> birth, but I was the first child and she didn't get an epidural with me because they did not time the window right. They were like, oh, you've got some time. And then the next time they checked her, they were like, oops, you're past the time. Sorry, Yikes. you can't have one. So now I know that when I eventually give birth, I'm going to yell at someone and say, you need to watch what's happening down there nonstop. Do not take your eyes off of my vagina. <laughs> I will not miss the window. Oh, well, here you are. And anyway. you were what, $12, $11? 20 bucks. 20 bucks. After insurance. Sorry. That I, is what my life costs. You know, is this is I'm a good worth. thing to be talking about because this is your birthday episode. It's good and important to talk oh, about true. birth. That's true. The day true. of. Thank good you Good timing. My mom will be stoked when I talk about Tell her that I spoke about this. Deb is an angel for bringing you into this world. Oh, yeah. She reminds me all the time. <laughs> all right. Let's do it. I'm excited let's do it. to all hear right. about yours. Bed and breakfast. When I think of B&Bs, I think of New England because that's where I'm from. And right now, I live in Boston. And what's close to Boston is Fall River, Massachusetts. And in Fall River, Massachusetts, there is a bed and breakfast that is much more than just a B and B, it is haunted. Yes, but this bed and breakfast is also the site of a gruesome and unsolved murder, or murders. A man and a woman were brutally axed to death, and for over a century, people have speculated that they lost their lives at the hands of their daughter, Lizzie Borden. E. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. It's, I can't believe it took us this long to talk about. Oh, my God. I know. And also disturbing that as like a seven-year-old outside at recess in <laughs> elementary school, we were jump roping to this and singing about axe murdering our parents and not really getting it. I never jump rope to that song. I was a goody two shoes and jump rope to like bubblegum songs. I don't That's know. That's nice. I probably looked deep into my mother's eyes and sang it to her in our driveway. I'm sure I did. That makes so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why she reminds me that I'm only worth $20 to her. <laughs> okay, so Lizzie Borden, she was born July 19th, 1860. So by the time this comes out, only a few weeks ago, plus many years. <laughs> <laughs> and she was one of two daughters. Her father had struggled with finances a lot in his earlier years, but by the time of his death, his estate was worth over $300,000 which in today's money is close to $8.5 million. So they were rich. Whoa. They were A-OK. -okay. The Borden family was living life. Although, mm -hmm. even though they were dripping in wealth, it was said that the Borden family were still very, they were very careful. They were very frugal. They didn't really want to spend their money on things that they didn't think were unnecessary. And some things that they found to not be necessities were uh, plumbing and electricity. So although they had the means to have this, which a lot of the wealthier families did at the time, right. they chose not to. So they didn't have that in their house. Hmm. And Lizzie and her older sister, whose name was Emma, they grew up in a really great neighborhood nonetheless. And they were super involved in activities in their town. They were really involved in the church throughout their entire lives. And when Lizzie was older, she actually ended up teaching Sunday school she was also a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. 
So Ooh. she was, you know, she was involved. She was a community gal, even though maybe she wasn't living to the standards, if you know the case, uh, not living to the standards that other people would like to hold her to. What was expected of a woman of that time? But still, Lizzie did well for herself as she got older. But there was still this big, painful hole in her heart and in her sister's heart because when they were young, really young, their mother, Sarah, passed away. And then their father, Andrew, was raising these two young girls by himself. But then eventually he met this woman, Abby, and he married. He remarried. So he married Abby. And Abby became Lizzie and Emma's stepmother, who Lizzie took to calling Mrs. Borden. And she said this kind of in a negative way because Lizzie and her stepmother, Abby, had a bit of a strained relationship. And part of that had to do with money because Lizzie was convinced that Abby was only in the marriage for the money. But if you actually look at the time that these people lived in, it might have been more of a marriage out of convenience, which some people believe because at the time her father was a single parent to two girls. And then Abby was in her 30s and single, which was a no-no for that time. All I will say is yeah. all I'm thinking of is that this story somewhat inspired Cinderella. Oh, the evil stepmother? Yeah. I guess. I don't think Abby was evil, though. I think she was just I know. A, a girl in her 30s. It was like, it's time. Everyone's pressuring me. I may not be in love, but this guy's rich, so fine. Right. Good enough, I guess. <sighs> that might be me one day. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I just you feel old. Have- You'll you'll have the lottery and Bigfoot and your cat. <laughs> you'll be good. This this story feels too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not the killing part. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, but anyway, regardless of the reason for Abby and for Andrew to marry, uh, they did, and this was the new family. So Lizzie just had to deal with it. It was her father Andrew, her stepmother now Abby, and her sister Emma. The three of them together. I mean, four. Wow. Math. Still not great at it. But (laughs) 26 years of life. Still not good at math. Whoops. Three, four. Basic, basic. I almost said algebra. Wow. (laughs) I'm really not doing well today. My brain is fried. Anyway. It's your birthday. You're forgiven. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Maybe we should cut this out. I swear I'm not dumb. (laughs) I know you're not. (laughs) Just as soon as there's a microphone in front of me, I can't formulate intelligent speech. Okay. But anyway, so this is their family now. It's the four of them together. But it didn't mean that Lizzie and Emma really got along with their stepmother or were very pleased with the new situation. I don't think it was that they didn't get along. It was just that they were kind of resistant to this new family and were just like, eh, we're not here for it. We didn't ask for this and we don't want it. So mm-hmm. as a family, they rarely eat dinner together. Lizzie would go off like on her own and eat dinner, which was, again, not like the norm for that time. So tensions were a little high in this family. And then a few other things happened to this family that really upset the girls. For one, their father, Andrew, had gifted real estate to family members of Abby, their stepmother, and real estate that they believed should have belonged to them because they were the children. Lizzie also, when she was younger, had made a little roosting station for some local pigeons that had been hanging out in the region. She liked animals. That's cute. And uh, so she was pretty unhappy because her father decided to just kill all of the pigeons (gasps) because he was like, oh, it's too enticing to the young kids. They'd probably come to our – they're going to come to our house and they're going to want to shoot the pigeons and I don't want 
guns and shots and drama here. So I'll just do it. Let me just kill them. Right. Exactly. So that's, I mean, those aren't good reasons to murder people at all, but they are cited as like examples of some tension or maybe some things that made Lizzie upset. Right. So then Andrew and his new wife, Abby, they're kind of upsetting the girls. They seem like a little bit of work, maybe not thinking about what Lizzie and Emma are going through. But then again, Lizzie and Emma themselves had their own issues and they both remained single for their whole lives, which was viewed as inappropriate pretty much during that time. And they lived Mm -hmm. in their family house because it was it was inappropriate to move out of your house until you were wed, and, but they never got wed. So it's basically just a house full of adults living together, like well into Abby and Lizzie's 30s. So there was going to be <laughs> drama, obviously, because it's a bunch of adults. It's the real world. Right. It's Jersey Shore, baby. Is it bad that I still watch um, Real World, The Challenge? <laughs> Do you? I didn't know it was still on. It's Well, it's like some of the people who were on The Real World, and now it's The Challenge. Um but Nick and I, it's our guilty pleasure. Anyway, we can move on from that. Back okay. to you. Back to me. Okay, so there was some drama in the house, but drama doesn't make you kill people. Drama doesn't axe their parents to death. So what really happened? There were some signs, some early signs before the murders that could have potentially clued people into who was going to kill the Bordens, the Borden parents, mm-hmm. um, and maybe possibly could have saved them. The family had been very sick, violently ill, in fact, the days leading up to the murders. And the family believed that they were being poisoned. And Andrew Borden wasn't the most popular guy around town. And he definitely had some enemies. Like, he had some – he was rich, so people were probably jealous. And then I'm sure he had some business deals that made people upset and Mm -hmm. gave him some enemies. So Lizzie, actually, a few days before the murder, she confided to some of her friends or a friend of hers saying that she thought that – Someone may be trying to poison them or worse. And she thought her thought of what's worse was not murder. She told her friend, I think someone's going to come and like set our house on fire or something and said that she was really afraid for her life. So either those who think that Lizzie committed the crime might say that it was just a cover up and this was her planting evidence places to make it seem like it wasn't her poisoning her family or maybe she really was on something mm. and there was someone who had a grudge against her family or her father and wanted to seek revenge and was trying to right. poison them all on august 4th 1892 in fall river massachusetts exactly 127 years ago to this day whoa today is august 4th what a coincidence. What a coinkadink. Andrew and Abby Borden were axed to death. That morning, the family all ate breakfast together along with a guest, John Morse, who had arrived the night before, and he was sleeping in their guest bedroom. And after breakfast, Andrew and John, they went into the sitting room for a chat. They had a nice long chat. And then about an hour after, John went out to do some shopping and to see his niece who lived nearby. And their father, Andrew, he left the house for a walk. And while the men were out, Abby went to make the bed for their guest, John. Normally, the girls would do it, Emma and Lizzie. Well, they're not mm-hmm. really girls here. They're in their 30s. But <laughs> but this time, for some reason, Abby was like, oh, I'll just go make the guest bedroom. I just want to make sure John's, like, nice and cozy in his guest room. So she goes up and she makes the bed. And then 
their live-in maid, Bridget Sullivan, who the family referred to as Maggie. I don't really know why, but the whole time they always call her Maggie. She mm-hmm. was washing all of the windows and then had shut them all tight. And when Andrew came home, the door was locked, but he knocked and Maggie then let him in. So, like, everyone's off. They're all doing their own thing. And then Andrew returns from his walk and Maggie's downstairs and she lets him in. But the door was a little bit jammed. And Maggie remembers Lizzie laughing from the top of the stairs as Maggie was trying to, like, she was struggling to open it for Lizzie's mm-hmm. father, Andrew. Yeah. So then Andrew comes in, he asks where his wife is, and Lizzie says that Abby had received some note from someone saying that there was a friend of hers that had been sick. So Abby was like, oh, I'm going to go see that friend. I'm going to go visit my sick friend. So Lizzie said that Abby had left. So Andrew asked for a little bit more detail. Like, who is this friend? Who gave the note? What did the note say? Like, And Lizzie just had no more detail. She was just like, I don't know. All she said was she got a note. She's a sick friend. She's going to go see her sick friend. Right. So Andrew's like, okay, whatever. I'm a little tired. I'm going to slide into my slippers. I'm going to take a nap on this couch. So he goes just into the sitting room on that first floor and he takes a nap. And then Lizzie tells Maggie that there's a sale at the department store and encourages her to go, encourages her to leave the home and attend this sale. Have a little shopping spree. Have a moment to yourself, Maggie. Mm -hmm. But Maggie's like, I'm actually pretty tired from washing all of these windows. I think I, too, am going to take a nap. So Maggie goes down for a nap, and she went up to her room to rest, and she remembers hearing the bell from City Hall strike at about 11 a.m. And then Uh. only minutes after, she hears Lizzie scream from downstairs, Maggie, come quick! Father's dead! Somebody came in and killed him! So together. Maggie and Lizzie are standing above Andrew, Andrew Borden, who is slumped over on the couch and had been struck either 10 or 11 times by an axe or a hatchet. Whoa. One of his eyeballs was, oh, it's really gruesome, was out kind of resting on his cheek and had like been split in two. Oh. So he was viciously attacked in his face. And an axe is a really hard weapon to use. The amount of times you'd have to take it out and redo it, that's a lot of force required. But I do believe that it might have been the backside of the axe or maybe some of the blows were the backside because oh. in the, I, didn't, I didn't write down all of the like gruesome details because this is supposed to be about paranormal activity. So I was trying <laughs> to skip over as much as I could of the details. But I do believe it was like a the marking on him was like a few inches by more inches. So I think it was like a thicker, uh, maybe the backside based on how large and wide the markings were, but probably also somewhere with the pointed tip, especially if your eyeball gets sliced in half. Yeah. So detectives come and they estimate that the time of death had to be around 11 a.m. So exactly when Maggie had heard the city hall bells chime, And just a few minutes before Lizzie started screaming. Wow. And they also said that the blood was still running from his body when Lizzie Mm. found him. So he had, like, just been killed. It was a fresh murder. Was Lizzie covered in blood? Detectives said at the time that there was – that they hadn't thought really to look around. So at the time, it was inappropriate to go through a female's belongings – So in their investigation, they never went through her room or anything, but what she was wearing, her outfit of the time, 
was not the normal outfit that you would wear in the day. So it, to them, looking back on finding Lizzie or going to the house and seeing Lizzie, it seemed like she had changed. Because I wonder if her sister, if it happened so quickly and she called her down two minutes later, I mean, I guess I'm just trying to think out timeline. This is very serial of me. Like how long it takes to hit someone with an axe 11 or 12 times and then change. I think it would take more than two minutes, don't you think? Well, it was a few minutes. So it was like probably like eight or nine minutes. Okay. So if you think about it, you could run downstairs and drop the hatchet, which is where the police found a hatchet mm. down in the basement, and then quickly th- take off your dress and just be in kind of like undergarments days. So strange. I don't know. Some lounging clothes. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, so his body was fresh and it was very scarring for Maggie, at least the mm-hmm. live-in maid. And Maggie wondered out loud where Abby was. And then all of a sudden Lizzie was like, oh, I'm pretty sure she's home. I think I heard her. You should go upstairs and look for her. And Maggie was like, "Uh, no, thanks. There is an axe Ooh. murderer potentially walking around this place. I'm not going to go upstairs by myself. Scary. So before the authorities had even come, when they had just found Andrew's body, they summoned a neighbor friend to come help them investigate. And Abby, her lifeless body, was found by this neighbor and by Maggie at the top of the stairs. Basically, from the top of the stairs, you could see it. Uh, she had been killed. She'd been murdered sometime before. She was struck in the back of her head and on the side of her face about 17 times. Whoa. And the first blow was more to the side of her head, which investigators presumed was due to Ab. Abby attempting to turn her head to see who was behind her. Oh. And then her body was found on the floor next to the guest bed. So in the guest room, she was murdered. When she, So probably when she had gone up around the right. time that she was fixing the sheets, making mm. the bed. And also investigators oh. said that it was estimated that she had been murdered some like hour and a half, like 90 minutes, 60 minutes before Andrew. So a significant amount of time had passed between the two people being killed. Wow. So that means the murderer was in the house or around the house for like two hour span. Wow. Most likely. So now there are some major problems arising for Lizzie with her alibi and just the case and evidence. Firstly, she contradicted herself many times in her interview with police. At first, she said that she had heard noises and that someone was calling for help. But then later on in her accounts, she was like, oh, yeah, no, I never heard anything. So she's contradicting herself. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes she said that she was in the house. And sometimes she said she was outside. Sometimes she was in the barn. And not only that, but when authorities had gone to look at where Lizzie had said she was in the barn, there were no footprints, nothing in the sawdust, on the floors, none of the dusty surfaces had been disrupted it was as if no one had ever been in there or at least recently so that that didn't really add up and then lizzie also denied being upstairs when maggie said that she had heard lizzie laugh when she had struggled when maggie had struggled to open the door for andrew Ah. and if that had been true if lizzie had been at the top of the stairs laughing that would have been after the proposed time of death of abby So Lizzie, from the top of the stairs, would have been able to see the axed body of Abby in the guest room from the top of the stairs. So she was laughing at the body. I don't know. Oh, I have chills. I know. This is scary. It really doesn't look good for Lizzie. 
And Lizzie was also unable to recount who gave Abby the note about her sick friend or what the note said. She had no details on that. And she also had been seen a few days later burning a dress that she said she had to burn because it was stained with paint. Yeah, that's suspicious. And she had also been seen around town just days before trying to buy poison. Or it was a chemical, I guess, that she said Come she on. was trying to use to uh, to get stains out or clean a certain garment that she had. But that same chemical could also be used to poison people. So a leading physician actually said, Hacking is almost a positive sign of a deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she's doing. So science, I guess. <laughs> huh. That's what the expert said. And so things are really not looking good for Lizzie at this time. So police were zeroing in on her and they took her to trial and she was indicted. But then later she was acquitted. So poor Lizzie was actually in the courtroom. It was quite traumatizing for her, which, of course, if you think she's a murderer, then you won't feel bad for her. But if you think she's innocent, then what I'm about to tell you is actually horrific. But in the courtroom, she was shown the heads of her deceased father and stepmother. And not just, I'm not talking pictures. I mean, they took the heads out of the bags. They sliced off the heads for evidence that these people were dead. And then carried the decapitated heads into the courtroom and showed these heads. Isn't that? They took the heads off. Took the heads off and brought them into the court. And Lizzie fainted. Obviously. (laughs) I know. I have so many questions. But the whole court, so like Lizzie fainted. It sounds absolutely horrible. Why would the judge allow that to happen? Why would anyone even? Let's talk about who grabbed the heads and was just okay holding these decapitated heads. Who that decapitated them? Looked at. What's wrong with them? Who decapitated them in the first place? The person who the uh odd whoever conducted the autopsy had done it. Well, that seems fucked at up. the per the instruction of. Probably the the prosecutors. That is all very, very strange and makes very no strange. sense. But people at the time were very delighted, very <laughs> excited by the drama in the courtroom. Oh, my God. And when Lizzie was eventually found not guilty, her and her sister Emma moved in together, although a lot of the town still thought Lizzie had done it. And her sister Emma vouched for her and vehemently denied that her sister was involved. She was like, no way. Lizzie could never do this. She's the sweetest. She would never commit such a horrible crime. And a lot of people who had known Lizzie before said the same thing. They were like, she was so nice. She was so polite, blah, 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 blah. So everyone's like very shocked, but everyone's also very, I guess, quick to point the finger at her. And then her sister Emma, who was like, there's no way she could have done this. They lived together for a long time, but they actually ended up having like a big falling out that no one really knows why they had the big falling out. And so some some people were like, oh, it must have been that she found out that Lizzie murdered her parents. But they still to the end, even though they weren't really on speaking terms and they'd moved out from living with each other, Emma stuck by her sister and insisted that Lizzie was innocent. Wow. So many people believed that Lizzie Borden was the murderer of Abby and Andrew Borden. But the motive differs as to why people believe that she's responsible. Mm. So some people think that she hated her stepmother and resented her dad for allowing Abby into their lives. Other people say that Lizzie was in a relationship with the maid Maggie and that Abby had caught them. And so she had to Mm. kill Abby then before she would tell Andrew or 
or maybe even Maggie killed the Borden parents because she was in the relationship with Lizzie. There are many different questions. And also the police investigators on the case, they they like very, very briefly looked into other suspects, but like not really. They were basically like, that person's a suspect, bring them in for like an hour. Oh, sounds right. Like, let's just leave them, leave them be. They were really zeroing in on Lizzie. So they actually may have looked over some of the things that may have led them to a different suspect. Right. So for example, just days before Lizzie's trial, another victim was axed to death in a very similar fashion in that same town. What? I've never heard this. Yep. And the man, he was caught and he went to jail for his his crime, but apparently he wasn't in the area during the time of the Borden's death, which, like, was that really thoroughly looked into? Right. I don't know. But it's still worth considering. Mm. And then another suspect may have been John Morse, the the friend who was visiting. That's what I was thinking. And then another... What? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I I can't remember. I can't remember if it was John Morse. Okay, but actually this is a good this is a good time to tell you about another podcast recommendation <laughs> that I have. Crime Junkie. Yep. It's the podcast that Connor had recommended to us when we were in New York. Yeah. So during our New York show, uh one, we got to meet our phantom Connor. And he was talking about Crime Junkie, and Sabrina and I were both like, wait, we actually haven't heard Crime Junkie. So I started listening to it, and I'm obsessed with it now. And they did an episode on Lizzie Borden, and actually everyone should go and listen to this episode after listening to this, because they went into such great detail on the actual chain of events and the life of the Bordens before and after the crime. So it's really good to go listen to at least that episode. And so now I'm going to butcher Great. this fact. I can't remember if it was John Morse or not that they had, the crime junkie had said was looked into as a suspect, but there was a man, it might have been John Morse, <laughs> who was looked into as a suspect. And he was like, oh, I have an alibi. I was with um, the like local doctor or the leading doctor of the town at the time. But then actually the doctor had been called to the Borden house. So like it didn't really add up because he... That wasn't true. Oh. The doctor was with the police. Maybe the, the doctor time. and John were in on it together. Maybe they were. I don't know. And then also Lizzie's mother's brother, a.k.a. Lizzie's maternal uncle, w- could have also been a suspect. He wasn't on the best of terms with the family. Mm. And so he could have been one. I'm sure there are more suspects right. that could be considered as well. Yeah, most people wanted to point the finger at Lizzie. And so right. a lot of people now looking back 120 some years later, a lot of people are like, oh, there's so much that could say that Lizzie actually didn't commit the crime. So it's kind of it's still it's still back and forth whether people think she's innocent or guilty. And wow. it's an unsolved murder. And on June 1st, 1927, Lizzie Borden died of pneumonia, which is also how I believe I'm going to die. So are you saying you're Lizzie Borden reincarnated? Maybe. I also just get pneumonia too much. (laughs) Okay. So that's probably how I'll go too. Uh, And then nine, only nine days later, her sister Emma died in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire. And they were buried together in Oak Grove Cemetery, which is in Fall River, Massachusetts. See, they, that's why they never got married is because they were each other's soulmates. They were best friends. They didn't need anyone. They were the best best girlfriends and also sisters. Love it. So, yeah, they were actually buried together, which is adorable. 
and Lizzie was worth $250,000 at the time of her death, which in today's money was just under $5 million. And she left over. Now I'm just going to stick to today's money because mm-hmm. it's easier. Yeah. So she had $5 million at the time of her death. And she left over a half of a million to the Fall River Animal Rescue League. Aww. So sweet. And then she gave $10,000 to the care of her father's grave so that he could be taken care of in the afterlife once she was gone. Wow. And she also gave $116,000 to each of her closest friends plus one cousin. And then other friends and family all received between $5,000 and $97,000 each. So she was extremely generous with her money. Wow. And today, the house where Lizzie Borden grew up and where her father and her stepmother were brutally axed to death is a bed and breakfast and a museum. Mm -hmm. So you can go. You can take a tour. You can uh, go from room to room. You can learn about the family and about their life and what it was like in Fall River at the time. And, of course, you can learn about the murders. And you can also sleep in the very room that Abby was murdered in. You can sleep in the guest room. Yikes. And the house itself, it doesn't have any of the original furniture, but based off of the crime scene photos, the people who own this bed and breakfast now, they had uh, custom pieces made to make it look like almost perfect replicas of what the home had been during the Borden's stay ah, that's here. kind of messed up it's so messed up <laughs> like literally took the crime scene photos and we're like i would love this couch i'm gonna put it right against here but also so cool and also really smart of them because they basically created a time capsule where you don't have to feel maybe as guilty about sitting on the actual furniture right but it's still it wasn't... it's like a weird i don't know yeah i get but it then also too in terms of paranormal activity oftentimes you know people say ghosts don't like change and they don't like their own furniture to be removed. That's the whole premise That's, of Beetlejuice. Yep. They didn't, I mean, the furniture was removed, but they they made the house look exactly as it was before, almost. So maybe they yeah. just appeased the spirits a little bit. They also decorated the house with decorations that allude to the crimes. So, for example, <laughs> they have replicas of Abby and Andrew's skulls. And they also have an autopsy table hung on the wall. They're really selling out. I love it. Really selling it. You know? And then they also have decorated with pictures of the Borden family. So actual pictures of, you know, Abby and Andrew and Lizzie and Emma. So walking around, you get a really good feel of what it was like in this house, how it was decorated, how people could move about the home. So this, it's really cool. This reminds me, I'm pretty sure Zach Bagans just bought the Sharon Tate Manson family murder home. Did he? Yeah, and I wonder if this is his plan with it. Oh my God, maybe he will because he went here. I'll tell you about it after. Oh, okay, great. Not after. I mean, During. while we're on the podcast, but towards <laughs> We'll save the, the ghost stuff for after when no one else can yeah, know. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then so if you go on a tour, the tour guide who's bringing you around may also show you a binder of laminated photos. And these are photos that were taken by guests who had spent the night and had caught some ghostly activity. Wow. So on the photos, there are things like orbs and ghostly clouds. And one photo was taken by a woman who was spending the night with her partner. And she woke in the middle of the night and thought that she saw something on the other side of the bed next to her partner. And so she quickly jumped up and she snapped a photo. And in the photo, there's like a misty cloud that just appears mm. 
almost solidly. Like it's in a very directional Ooh. Uh, d- direction, you know? <laughs> I get a directional what you're saying. Sh- shape. <laughs> and so that really confirmed her suspicion and her feeling that there was a ghost hovering over her and her partner as they slept. That's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrifying. Yep. To then, yeah, take the picture and be like, oh, shit, it's still standing right there. Yep. Even after I jumped up and grabbed my camera. Above you. Nope. Yep. Very spooky. And then another woman, she was spending a night there with her friend, and the two of them were like, they were pretty spooked by the stories of everything and had been on the tour. And so they're in their room, and they're trying to fall asleep, and they're trying to remain remain calm and just be like, it's fine. Nothing has happened so far, even though we're in Abby's room where she was murdered. So yeah. they're just trying to be calm. But then they hear some beeping noises from the other side of the wall. And they're like, what the hell is that? So they go to investigate and they leave their room and they enter the hallway and they find another girl who had downloaded a ghost detector app on her phone, <laughs> which they were like, okay, that's hogwash. Like a, f- a cell phone and an app cannot detect if there's paranormal activity. But it does but make sense because ghosts love electronics. It's true. They can manipulate them. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't actually, it probably doesn't detect them, but maybe it gives them an opportunity to utilize. Yeah. It's like a Ouija board. Right, 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 right. So they're like, okay, that's dumb. And the girl's like, oh, maybe you're right. And so <laughs> she's walking back to her room and that's when they notice that the app kind of like slows down and is quieter as she returns to her room. But as soon as she walks towards the room that these girls are staying in, the room where Abby was murdered, the thing is super, super loud and it beeps way quicker. So they were like, okay, this is really suspicious. This app doesn't know where the hell it is, but maybe there is a ghost that's trying to get our attention through this device. Wow. So now they're a little bit nervous and they're like, let's just watch some Netflix. And so they put on some like nice show to try to calm (laughs) their nerves and to go to sleep now in the room that they believe there's a ghost in because of the cell phone. And then a few minutes after 3 a.m., the fire alarm goes off for absolutely no reason, which it's an old home. There can be some faulty wiring. Yeah. But what if something wanted them awake during the witching hour? Then you run far, far away. They didn't. They resisted the urge to run and they stayed until morning. And the next morning, the girls, they go down. And they're in the dining room getting some breakfast and they hear other guests talking about the fire alarm. And they're like, oh, my God. Yeah, we woke up, too. Mm-hmm. And they, everyone got their stories straight. It was like all the same time. And everyone was like, that was so weird. And then an employee who overheard paused and was kind of concerned <laughs> and was like, wait, when did this happen? And so they they tell him the time, which was just after 3 a.m. And his face twists a little bit. Oh, no. And then he began to write it off as just, oh, guys, don't worry. It's just old wiring in this house. It's it's old. Mm-hmm. But also, I won't lie to you, this does happen every few months or so. And what's odd is that it always happens at the same time. Oh. So does faulty wiring make a fire alarm go off around 3 a.m. every few months? No. And no other time of day? Interesting. There is a guide who works at the bed and breakfast as well. Her name is Deb. And she, during her time in this house, she has been touched by an unseen hand. Hmm. She has felt her shirt being tugged. She's heard someone whisper in her ear. And she's even heard children giggling from attic bedrooms. Oh, that's scary. 
But why were there children? Yeah. What? There weren't children in this Borden family. Well, let me tell you. Because back in 1848, Andrew Borden, his uncle, lived in the house next door. And his wife ended up going a little mad in that house and drown her three <gasps> children in the well and then slit her throat with a straight razor. Wait, this is Andrew's family? This is Andrew's aunt and cousins who were her, his cousins were drowned. One oh, no. of the children, one of the three children survived. But this property and the Borden family have a history of tragedy and murder and death all right here in this little section yeah, of Fall River. really freaky. Yeah. So perhaps the children are the Borden children who just took up residency with their other relatives, the right. Andrew and Abby and Lizzie and Emma, who potentially haunt the Borden house. I'm curious if the house next door is still the same house and if that one, like if the ghosts go back and forth, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some people have been speculating, too. It's like, okay, well, if this also happened to other relatives who weren't in this exact house but were nearby, is is there something dark lurking in that area? Is there a dark entity that was preying in that area and just pinpointed the Bordens? Or is there something in the family, maybe some sort of mental illness? Right. Or is there a curse? Are the Borden, Bordens and all of their relatives cursed? Wow. So there's a lot of a lot of possibilities. But – Mr. Borden is said to still, Andrew Borden, he's said to still be in the house and to just be going about his normal business, living his life, except this time he is a spirit and he's apparently unwilling to accept that he has passed on. So oh. he still remains in the home and his spirit just wanders around. But he's not alone because his second wife, Abby, who was murdered alongside him, mm -hmm. is also there. She is seen more frequently than Andrew is, and she appears as a full-bodied apparition. And sometimes guests will experience a real fright when Abby decides to reenact her death by letting out a horrible scream. No. Yep, she shrieks. Whoa. She screams. You know what? She has every right to do so. Yeah, she does. And she and she does. <laughs> she... She pr proudly screams, I think. Wow. I hope it's, like, not that she's forced to, like, relive it, you know? Yeah. Because that would be well, really horrible. Well, because in the, actual, in the actual murder, she didn't have time to react, so she didn't scream. Oh. Well, we know that because no everyone was pretty much awake in the house when Abby right. had died. When Andrew was axed to death, Maggie was halfway, like, down for an app. Right. But when uh, Abby was murdered, it was when... Like half the people were still in the home. You're so right. we know that she didn't really make much of a noise. Unless they were all in it together. Conspiracies. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And then Andrew was in it, but then he himself were murdered. I don't well, know. didn't Andrew get back later? I'm not sure when he left the house in terms of what time he left to mm. compared to if Abby had already been. If she had already gone upstairs as he was leaving. Right. Or if she waited until after he left. I'm not sure. Who knows? But other paranormal activity includes beds appearing to be indented as if someone's sitting there. Possibly Lizzie because she's been seen in the basement of the home. And people who see her in the basement say that she is cleaning what appears to be a hatchet. Which, if you Ooh. believe that Lizzie committed the crime, that's possible. That ghostly sighting would make sense. Yeah. But it definitely heavily relies on the assumption that she did the murders and she cleaned the axe and hid it in the basement. Which, there was an axe or a hatchet found in the basement that had a broken handle and so the 
police had believed that that at the time may have been the murder weapon, though I think later on they were like, "Eh, it's probably not it. And then also the maid, Bridget Sullivan, the nickname Maggie, Maggie is there along with her cat. People have spotted Maggie walking around and have heard her cat meowing. Lay, do you hear that? She's sleeping. There's a lot of cats in this. And also, in addition to all of these sightings, guests have seen doors open on their own, lights have flickered on and off, and there are phantom footsteps that walk through the home. And then, of course, Zach Bagans and Ghost Adventures, they went and they spent the night at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast and Museum. And they interviewed guests and employees and owners who had experienced odd things around the house. And uh, one man, he had been in the basement and he was vocally challenging the spirit in the basement who had been, he believed there was someone down there. And so he just kind of like spoke out to him and kind of challenged whatever was there. And upon doing so, this man was shoved against the wall and his arms were pinned above his head by this unseen force. He was attacked. And right after, handprints had appeared on his arm, like as if someone had really been holding him. And then also the current owners have two daughters and uh, one of the daughters was in Lizzie's room and she was kind of looking at the jewelry that was out and Mm -hmm. she felt this tug on her ear, like the way way someone would tug the ear of a child to say like, stop doing what you're doing. And then the other daughter will also no longer enter the home because when she was a young child, she fainted. Mm -hmm. So both of the daughters are pretty spooked. About being in yeah, the Lizzie Borden I don't house. blame them. They've both had experiences. Yeah. And then there's another woman who had attended a seance at the home, and she had felt very disoriented during the seance, but that wasn't really the scariest thing to happen. They had been filming, and while they were filming, the camera moved at a sharp angle with some force, as if someone was, like, really just tugging on it and switching the direction of the camera. And the camera had moved to face some of the people in the room. So it was like filming people Uh that were doing the seance. And so nervously, and you can watch this footage. I watched it. It's on the Ghost Adventures episode. Scary. Yeah, because they were filming it. So it's all on film. And so nervously, they're all asking and they're like, did someone just do that? Did anyone in here move that? Did someone accidentally step on the cord? And no one had. So then they go down and they kneel by the camera and they do a few tests, like attempting to make the camera move like that again. Mm -hmm. But... They were unsuccessful, so they just move it back to the way that they had it. And as soon as they walk away, the camera again moves to film the people in the room. Whoa. Which is so creepy. So it's like the ghosts were filming the people, not the other way around. Uh, I don't like it. And then, of course, Aaron and Zach, they spend the night in the home. (laughs) And during their stay, they attempt to make contact using a REM pod and this is a, a device with like a little metal rod that spirits can easy, easily manipulate to make uh, the light on the device light up. So when they were using it, they were saying like, press it, like make it light up once for yes, twice for no, or right. like once for female, twice for male or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it requires way less energy of the spirit. So it's it's good as long as you can do like yes or no right. answers. right. Almost immediately, a spirit makes contact with Zach and Aaron on this device. One for yes, two for no. The spirit wants to harm them. The spirit is not evil. This is like all the answers that they got. But it does want to harm them? Yep. Said, do you want to harm me? And they said, one light, yes. Are you evil? Two lights, no. 
The spear also said that, yes, they did kill Andrew and Abby Borden. When asked if it was one for female or two for male, the spirit refused to answer. Mm. And the machine just goes wild. And it's like going on and off and like beep, 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 like doing the whole thing. And the machine just kept going haywire and turning on and off after that. And they're, of course, Zach is like, stop it, stop, like yelling at the spirit. <laughs> of course. And a really, really cold draft moves through and cloaks Zach and Aaron, who are standing nearby the machine. Uh. Also during their stay, Aaron and Zach capture footsteps. They also get a loud hissing noise, like <laughs> a cat on their device. They hear shuffling. They hear laughing. They have doors opening there's a drawer that opens when they're doing they're like fully filming as they're walking around and they kind of pan in this room and the the drawer is closed and then a few minutes later you hear like something open and they go back into that room and the drawer is now open and then they like close the drawer and open it again and it made that exact same noise so something opened the drawer interesting and then they also caught a bunch more evps besides just the hissing which is super disturbing they caught a woman's voice whispering I'll take you to heaven. Oh my. And then even more threatening, they heard another female whisper saying, keep on killing, keep them coming. And then when the group of investigators were all together, so now instead of just Zach and Aaron being inside the home, Nick is in there and some other investigators. And then a male voice comes over the recording and says, they're all together. And then later it says, thank you, Zach. And then Abby also comes through. She says her name twice. She just says, Abby, Abby. She's just declaring herself present. And then when asked which family experienced a lot of death to try to test out the spirits, the spirits said, or the spirit said, Borden. And then when asked who attacked the people in the home, the spirit answered, Lizzie. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. So, if you're eager now, now knowing all of what's happened in this house, if you're eager to go to the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast and Museum, but you're afraid of the spirits. Yep. Me. And afraid of them surprising you and afraid of spending the night, don't worry. Apparently, some of these spirits respond well to bribery. (laughs) Mr. Borden will leave you alone if you place a few coins on his bedroom bureau. And the spirits of the children will leave you alone. They will accept your peace offering. So long as it is toys. Makes and sense. then I don't know about the other ghosts. You might be out of luck with Abby and Lizzie. Yeah, I don't think but I'd ever spend the night there. I It's really scary. There was a girl at work that was like, we should go. And I was like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but the house also has a protector. And in true Hocus Pocus-like fashion, there's a cat named Max who roams around the building. Oh, currently? Mm-hmm. We like that. I don't know if it's a black cat and its name is not Binks, but it's Max, which is also a character in Hocus Pocus. So I I also really like that, too. But that is the Lizzie Borden house and bed and breakfast. Would you go? I would go for a tour. I would not spend the night. Okay. I would go for a tour. Yeah. I believe that because I'm so open and already experienced things that I might be more of a target. Like, oh... She knows. She can feel and hear and see things. Let's go chat with her. And then I'd be like, no, leave me alone. <laughs> okay. I'd be running Next time hills. I'm in Boston, next time I'm visiting you, we have to go. Yeah. Oh, also, fact I didn't include, 
This is within the Bridgewater Triangle. So more stuff to add to the list. So many conspiracies. I don't even know. So many conspiracies. It is a wild story. It's really crazy. And what's crazy is that it's unsolved. There is a podcast, I believe, that's like truly about this case. I think it might just be called the Lizzie Borden podcast. But I did listen to um, Crime Junkie, their episode. Hmm. So people can get way more info outside of our episode on the nitty gritty details of the case. But it does kind of it left me thinking that it's Lizzie, but it also left me being like, okay, well, they didn't do enough at the time. Like there's plenty of things that can make you think one thing. I, I have a hard time believing that no one else was in on it, given that they were all in the house at the same time. Right. I don't know. I feel like there was – I do think Lizzie was part of it, but I don't think she was alone. Because how would someone creep in the house? And Maggie had closed and, like, locked all of the windows. She just cleaned them all. Well, maybe that's why she closed and locked them all so that the sounds didn't pour out onto the streets. Yeah. And even as Angie tried to re-enter, the door was so jammed that she had trouble opening it. I'm so curious. Maybe she, maybe it wasn't jammed. Maybe she was just so nervous because they had just killed Abby and were about to kill Andrew. There's a movie that came out a couple years ago with, it's based around that theory that uh, Maggie and Lizzie had a relationship together. And that was the reason for their. Yeah. What's her name Um, from Twilight? She's in it, right? Kristen Stewart. Yeah. She plays Maggie. Yeah. 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 Pretty wild. Okay. Let's hear your essay i mean i know we already talked about this but this researching this specific place really blew my mind it's just there's so much history and the amount of stories that just i kept finding it was endless and i i'm as scary as this place is i'm so on board with it oh my gosh okay i'm so excited to hear okay so it's called the ancient ram inn and it is a no longer operational bed and breakfast in Watton Under Edge, England. It is known for its rich and dark history, which has led to something like 20 or so spirits haunting the property. It actually dates all the way back to the Celts, not the Celts. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> and back when the Druids, which were the high priests of the Celtic culture, They would perform human sacrifices on this land. And then pagans used it as a burial ground. Many battles were fought here. A witch was hunted and killed there. And numerous murders, many unsolved, have taken place on this land. Another thing is that there are both incubus and succubus spirits that haunt this inn and the building around and land around the ancient Ram Inn. And it's known to be one of the most harrowing, scary, terrifying places to spend the night. And with all this being said, there are uh, kind of a lot of adult themes being mentioned and discussed in this section. I guess this whole episode, right? It's a lot of murder, death. But anyways, if you have kids listening, might be a little inappropriate. But hey, listen at your own risk. As we know, England and all of Europe has, you know, tons and tons of history and many prominent ley lines go through this area of England. And if, I think we talked about it in the episode where we talked about the Celtics and ley lines and how they are believed to be straight lines that carry an altered form of the Earth's magnetic field. People believe that they ooze back energy from all the people who have ridden path, 
ridden these paths since the beginning of time and that they connect very spiritual or important places on earth. So due to this energy and historical impact, ley lines are believed to have more spiritual activity in even they're believed to draw UFOs towards them. Others disregard the spiritual belief and focus on the electromagnetic forces of the earth and they believe the energy emitted from these areas can cause people to go mad and live in an altered mental state. So either way, Ooh. it seems like this energy is really intense on the ley lines and where the ancient Ram Inn stands, it is believed that two ley lines, two separate ley lines converge right underneath. So the two ley lines, one of them comes from the original site of the Church of St. Mary the Virgin and the other one comes from Stonehenge. So two very prominent, two very historical places in Europe converge oh, yeah. under the ancient Ram Inn. So let's go back to the 3rd century BCE where the Celtics and the high-ranking officials, the Druids, were performing human sacrifices as part of their rituals. And also I looked up and I looked into this a little bit just to look into what their rituals were. And they used to make these huge effigies that looked like a human and then they would stuff the effigies with human body parts so they kill multiple people and animals and they just like put the pieces inside the effigy and then burn it and sacrifice it to the god i don't know what an effigy is it's basically in this version of it it's like a straw thing that looks like a like massive the wicker human. man like the wicker man correct okay so during this time in the land that now is Wooten Undredge, the Druids performed their sacrifices on an altar, which is atop of a hill where the, where the Church of St. Mary the Virgin now stands. And there was an altar that stood on the hill, and it was soaked with blood. And at the time of their rituals, the Druids would depart their homes late at night in their long black robes, their hoods over their heads, and they'd meet at the altar. And I just imagine, like, these creepy monk-looking people in black hoods where you can't see their faces walking out from the fog and all converging in one oh god nightmare inducing freaky so they would perform many many sacrifices on this land but there's one in particular that stands out and i will say this because there are two bodies that were uncovered inside the ancient ram inn in the 1990s and they date all the way back to this time and it's the body of their two bodies the bodies of a woman and a child were found buried beneath the land and they were found side by side with an ancient knife beside them and the bristol museum was actually able to date the skeletal remains all the way back to the third century bce the bronze age and they believed that they were part of a human sacrifice and based on the decomposition Ooh. and forensic evidence on the bodies it was believed that they were killed and their bodies were rolled into the marsh pond which eventually dried up and buried their bodies in the ground where the ram inn was later built you know, I have to say, I think human sacrifice is one of the most terrifying things I've ever heard because yes. it's one thing to just murder someone, but when it's human sacrifice, that means a collection of people have all agreed that, yes, yes. this is the right thing to do to these random people. And and these people, I'm not going to speak for them, but based on what I was reading is that these people who were sacrificed sometimes were willing participants and they were very happy to be chosen to be sacrificed to the gods. Oh man, oh man, oh man. Wait, blows my mind. Okay, so decades passed after this and civilization formed. And when Walton Underedge was on its way be to becoming a town, of course, they decided let's build the church and then build the town around it. And so that's when they be began construction on the Church of St. Mary the Virgin. 
And in order to do that and to make construction go as quickly and as efficiently as possible, they built this tiny little inn down the hill from where the church was going to be built. And they had all the builders, the workers, the construction workers, everyone involved with the building of this church stay in this little inn. This inn then became the ancient Ram Inn, which it is today, but it was built in 1145. It's the oldest building in all of Wotan Under Edge. It's also believed that when they were building the church, they had to redirect streams, which people believe is a bad omen that you shouldn't be doing that. And in doing so, you open a portal for bad energy to come in. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Don't understand it quite yet, but maybe someone can explain it to me. Anyway, the church was completed somewhere around 1160, and then all of the construction workers moved out of the little inn down, down the hill, and the priest and all the clergymen moved in to the home. And then it changed many hands, and it stood witness to many historical events. It survived a massive fire in the 12th century. It saw a bloody battle between two feuding noble families, and then it became an inn. Not quite yet the ancient Ram Inn, but another inn. And... When it was that inn, or when it was passing through and becoming different inns, it gained some notoriety from one of the better-known legends that surrounds the ancient Ram Inn's history. And it is said that sometime in the 1500s, the current innkeeper of the inn housed a witch and gave her refuge. And the story goes... Oh, I like that. It doesn't end very well, I'm sorry to say. Anyway, so the story goes that there was this woman, her name was Tabitha, and she lived in this part of the town, and that she was known as a healer in the town. Granted, she had a kind of a, like a, she had a kind of a bad rap throughout the town, and some people really did think she had healing powers and was able to heal people. Others questioned her, the way that she did things, and thought that maybe she was a witch. Well, if she's healing people, who cares? Well, on this specific night... A young mother had called Tabitha to help heal her son who was sick with a fever. And Tabitha, of course, wanted to help. And so she goes to this woman's home and she sits with the boy and listens to his heart and does all of her techniques or whatever it it is that she did to try to heal her patients. And unfortunately, whatever she, she, she did everything she could, but unfortunately the boy died in her arms and Tabitha was heartbroken and completely distraught and she didn't know how to tell the mother. And she decided that instead of telling the mother, she was going to just leave the house. So she got up and left. And as she was fleeing the house, she heard the mother's screams, which meant that the mother then had discovered her son, her dead (gasps) son. And so she starts fleeing. She just knows that the other people in the town are going to question her and that they already think that she's a witch. It's going to make her look super guilty. Right. Which almost so leaving and running away from the scene almost makes it worse as well. You know, she did everything she could. Granted, it's the 1500s. So people are horrible and kill for everything. Right. And your reaction is your reaction. You can't really predict how you're going to react or you're right. not thinking, you're not taking a moment and being like, let me think through this case and how this would work. You're just like, mm-hmm. holy crap. Oh my God. I'm so scared. I need to run away. Yeah. To my so own she- home, which is where I feel comfortable. Exactly. So she's running. She has her, apparently she has her trusty cat and I don't know if she actually has a cat, but people say she does. Anyway, she has her trusty cat and she has her medical supplies and she's running. And all of a sudden she hears within minutes, she hears all the townspeople gathering and screaming, and they are going on a witch hunt. They Ooh. are going after her. So she probably was right in running. 
she didn't know what to do. She needed to find safety. So she found an inn. She came across this inn and she quickly slipped inside and found an innkeeper. They both stared at each other. She wasn't sure what he was going to do or what she was going to do. And he smiled a crooked yellow rotten teeth smile and motioned for her to follow him. So he was going to give her safety, refuge. And he showed her into a room and told her she would be safe. So Tabitha was relieved and settled into the room. And as I said, she had a cat and she sat on the bed and her cat came and comforted her and sat in her lap knowing that she was uneasy. And then unfortunately she hears the shouts of an angry crowd out in the distance and she looks out through the window and she sees these tiny dancing lights coming and emerging out through the woods. It was the mob. And within minutes they were knocking on the innkeeper's door and they barged in and they demanded to know where the witch was. And Tabitha was frightened. She was like, what is this innkeeper going to do? Is he going to rat me out? Am I screwed? But the innkeeper starts to tell the mob that no one's staying there, but they insist that they need to search every single room and be sure. And so the innkeeper loudly states, I have to first get my keys, which is buying Tabitha time either to hide or to get out. But she's up on the second floor. She can't jump. She decides to hide. So she slides underneath the bed and she calls to her cat, tells her like telling her cat to come. But her cat starts hissing and is violently like kind of scratching at her. And Tabitha's like, my cat has never done this. What's happening? But anyway, it's too late. She can't do anything about it. The door, the key starts jingling in the door. The door opens. She's still under the bed, so she's safe, but her cat's out and about. And the innkeeper sees the cat and tells the angry crowd, um, witch hunt crowd, townspeople, says, that's my cat. It kills all the rats. And Tabitha lets out a sigh of relief. She feels safe. But then she feels something cold on the back of her neck. Keep in mind, she's alone under the bed, but she feels yeah. something cold cross across her back. Oh my gosh. And she feels like something is touching her. And she is horrified, but she has to be quiet because the freaking angry mob is right in the doorway. And all of a sudden, the angry mob is appeased. They believe that she's not there, so they leave. And the door closes and Tabitha scrams out of the underneath the bed she's terrified and she was like what the hell was just touching me and all of a sudden something starts to like ooze out from under the bed like a white misty thing and she is so terrified that she sprints out of the room outside of the inn and screams for help and unfortunately screams right into the angry mob's hands oh my god and instead of helping her they then burnt her at the stake immediately right there how do we know what she experienced under the bed it's legend so i don't know but it's i think part of because of what happens in the room today and because she screamed for help leaving the uh in so people believe that something was happening to her inside the bedroom that she was hiding in and maybe her cat later on was acting that same way in that same spot. And maybe the guy who lived there experienced it too and was like, oh my God, this must have been what happened to her. Right. I think it's a collection of all of that that has happened. And it is believed that her spirit still haunts the ancient Ram Inn today. The room that she was hiding out in is now named after her. It's named the Witch's Room. And when it was a functioning bed and breakfast, guests would wake up 
to the smell of cat pee when there was no cat present at all. There was no cat in the inn whatsoever. And they would feel around their sheet. And sure enough, there would be a puddle of liquid. So the ghost cat was peeing in their beds. Oh, oh my gosh. The room is often measured to be 66.6 degrees, which is just an odd coincidence. Or maybe it's more than that. And it's a paranormal happening. But also the witch herself seems to haunt the room and she's said to have physically harmed visitors, which is sad because I feel like she, I don't know, I feel like she was a good spirit or she was a good person who just was given the short end of the stick. And uh, people believe that she is trying to get revenge and that she's trying to enact revenge specifically on relatives and descendants of the people who killed her. Wow. Um, and when paranormal investigators or groups come in to try to communicate with spirits in general in the in the inn at all, they will be trying to record EVPs and all they will get is a, a woman laughing hysterically and evilly. And so people think that she's like trying to prevent anyone from communicating with the spirits. There are also tons of other spirits, like I said, at least 20 in the inn. And since it has passed hands many times... All of the owners before the one main owner, John Humphreys, all wanted to desperately flee because of the evil they felt within the walls. And also the inn was impossible to fill because very few people wanted to stay there because of the legends and the stories that came out of it. So by 1965, the inn was becoming very decrepit and it was on the verge of being demolished. Like, the town itself was ready to demolish it. And almost a few weeks before, the man, a man by the name of John Humphreys swooped in and he was like, I want the property. So this is 1968 now. And he bought it for 2,600 euros. He saved the inn from demolition. But people think that he has become victim to the spirits and he himself was consumed by them because John wow. had so many encounters which all started on the very first night that he stayed there. And then he died in 2007. Mm, I may have written that wrong. It might be 2017. But when he died, people theorized that he joined the ranks of the spirits in the inn. This is, I put this in for you, Corinne, but when he bought the place, it had no running water and it still has no running water. So you will not be visiting it. Not that you no. would. Not that you would anyway, just because you'll, you'll know why. I feel like you already no, know why. Thank you. You won't be going. Okay, so John Humphreys moved in to the inn, and he named it the Ancient Ram Inn, and he was planning to set the place up, and three days later, his wife and daughters would come and join him. But on the very, very first night, John was laying in bed, and he had fallen asleep, and he wakes up in the middle of the night to being physically dragged out of the bed by an unseen force and thrown across the the room. Oh dear. When he woke up the next morning, he was confused and his entire body hurt and he felt like something had violated him. And his pillow was covered in sweat and he was also naked, which he had not gone to bed naked. So he got dressed and he went to start his morning and as he passed another room in the hall, his entire body began to convulse and a cold chill went through his entire body and he was struck with fear. And for the next three days, every night he woke up as if something was dragging him out of bed and tossing him aside, and he felt like something was taking advantage of him every night. And then he realized what had been happening. 
something was having sex with him while he was asleep. Oh my gosh. Oh no. He was horrified and then he bought a Bible and would not go anywhere without it. He would have it, he would carry it around clutching it in his arms. He was that scared, but it didn't yeah. help him. It didn't help at all because of the assaults continued. And and this is all before his wife and kid come and he's now he's terrified and he doesn't want them to come. And he's thinking on he's trying to figure out what to do. Does he tell them not to come? Does he try to sell the place? Whatnot. And this is on his mind. And he's walking through the inn. And all of a sudden he feels that all too familiar cold chill grab him from behind. And it spoke to him this time. Ooh. But also it was a little bit gentle with him. It felt like John described it as if the entity now felt like they were in a relationship of some sort because the entity caressed his hand, kind of slipped its cold fingers through his fingers. John squeezed the Bible, but the entity stayed. It didn't help. And the entity spoke to him. And the succubus caressed John's hands and whispered to John about his family. It told John that if his family never came to the inn, then John would be alone for the rest of his life. And that his family had to come to the inn in order to understand. So basically the entity was like manipulating John to bringing his family to come to the inn. And they did. Oh, that's they so came. Creepy. They came to the inn. And this is part of why people think that John was kind of taken over, not like not possessed per se, but just consumed by the entities and that he kind of became a part of them. So his family, his wife and children move in and he immediately tells his wife, he says, I this was a mistake. I don't think we should have bought this in, but it was too late. And it was the only place, it was now their home. They had to stay there. And days later, his wife came to him telling him that their daughters were having very odd experiences and that they thought the place was strange. The girl said that the walls were shrieking and that voices were speaking through the walls to them. John, knowing all too well what was actually happening, told the daughters that it was all their imagination and everything will be fine. It's all fine. It's okay. And then days later, the inn opened and guests and visitors started to come stay the night. And people loved the ambiance of the home. It had many antiques. It had this medieval window. It had beautiful fireplaces and furniture. But in the first week, one night, an American guest literally leapt out of their window and ran screaming down the street in terror. Mm. And John fixed the window and put a Bible in the room. And business continued. But then a young woman who spent the night came to John the next morning, complaining of being scratched in the middle of the night. And sure enough, she showed her scratches and it was deep three claws on her shoulder. Oh, no. And so John offered this woman a refund and then put first aid kits in, into each of the rooms and business continued. And John was doing his best to appease his guests, but it was his family he should have been more concerned about because one day his daughters were playing at the bottom of the stairs when an entire dresser rose up from atop the stairs and was thrown down the stairs towards his daughters. And it missed oh, them. the amount of force. I can't even lift a dresser. Most people can't. Exactly. And it missed his daughters by less than a foot. And so that was kind of the last straw and his wife was so distraught and she told John, she's, she said, I love you, but this is insane. If you can't give up this in, 
then I'm leaving. And John chose the inn over his family. No. Well, did John choose the inn or did something make John choose the inn? Right. I'm so shocked that this has not been turned into a movie. I'm going to buy the rights to this story. I'm confused. Right now in my room, the zipper on just one thing is going kind of crazy. And nothing else is going. And my windows are closed and my air is not on and my fan is not going. The zipper? Yeah, it's going back and forth. And I was like, oh, maybe maybe the building just started to shake, but no other zippers are doing that. Let's move on. I'll just ignore it. It's literally right in front of my face. Oh, scary. It keeps like turning too. Oh, no. (gasps) Oh, it's going faster now. I'm scared. Wait, can you turn me to see it? No, no. Why do I want to see it? I want to see it. No, I can't. I'm too scared. Can you can you move it? I don't want to touch it. <laughs> so scared. Your face is turning bright red. I feel like it's re- it's reacting like it's going way faster now. Maybe it needs me to continue telling my story. Yeah, will you just keep going? I want to video it, but I don't because <laughs> I w- don't want to capture anything I don't want to see. Wait, please video it and send it to me. No, Sabrina, I can't. I cannot. I literally cannot bring myself. I'm frozen. <laughs> Just keep going. The Just... different ways that we react to things. Okay, okay. Say, tell it's not welcome here if it's going to harm you. Just keep Claim going. your space, Corinne. No, no, no. You, you just keep going. Claim your space. Wait, this is really weird. It's like starting to stop now. All right, I'm going to claim your space for you. Please do not harm Corinne. You are not welcome. This is Corinne's home. Is it gone? It's just really small movements now. I don't know. Okay, we spent too much time on this paranormal activity. <laughs> please, Spirit, please just, it's not a good time. There we go. Okay. So- <gasps> it stopped. Oh, my God. Corinne, you're scaring the shit out oh of me. Oh, my God, it stopped. That's a good thing. No, it means that it was real. I'm just going to zipper it on up. Just and then put it underneath my blanket so I can't see it. All right. I'm back in. I'm ready. You scared me more when you said it stopped than when it started. Me too, because it felt like confirmation. Uh, That freaks me out. I'm sorry. I hope no other zippers start going now. Ghost. It's a zipper's on my podcasting bag that I keep all the equipment in. <laughs> okay, okay. We're back to the story. Okay. So his daughter, his wife and daughters move out. And she told John, this place is evil. And if you choose to stay here, then something within you must too be evil. Which is scary. John could not leave the inn. Something and some things, some ones, some spirits was keeping him there, and John was now alone. His only company was that of the spirits. And he even went on record, he, in like a few of his interviews, said he started to feel comfort in their presences. And keep in mind, throughout the many years that he owned and lived in this inn, he was continued continually, not constantly, but conti- like over the time he had been assaulted by this succubus on multiple occasions. And yet he felt comfort in their presences. Oh, no, 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 no. Something's manipulating him. Yes. And so one of John's daughters, Caroline, 
was in, she was interviewed by the Daily Mail and she said that growing up in the shadow of the ancient ram, she would sleep in a caravan outside when they did live there and that her and her sister was, were so afraid to enter the property and that it was normal for people around the neighborhood to see all of them running out of the house screaming in terror. (laughs) Can you imagine being a neighbor? I'd just host like little dinner parties and be like, no, it's fun. I swear it's it's about to happen. It's almost time. Everyone just <laughs> gather around, enjoy your snacks and watch the show. Oh, I'd so much rather be a neighbor than actually own this place. Oh, 100%. So John then spent the rest of his life dedicated to restoring and caring for the property. He found evidence of ritual sacrifice and devil worship. They once found a goat's hoof lodged behind a brick in the chimney. They also found other tributes to the devil, like mummified animals, daggers that looked like they had been used, and jars full of strange objects and liquids. And one of them actually looked like a human finger. Very strange. And he was also with the paranormal investigators when they helped dig up the skeletal remains of the sacrificed woman and boy. During his ownership, the ancient Ram Inn grew quite the reputation for being haunted, and it was featured on many TV shows, including Ghost Avengers and it deserved the title of one of England's most haunted houses. So let's get into the specific ghosts. So when you enter the building, which actually is very complicated because there is no door on the street-facing side of the building. You have to go to the back. But when you enter, you are immediately struck with an odd chill, and the home is very hobbit-looking. It has stone walls, small doors, And inside, it is very eccentric. People say that John was a hoarder. So he had tons and tons of knickknacks from floor to ceiling. He had old paintings, antique furniture, and many strange stuffed animals, which apparently were gifts to the children that haunted this building. And the kitchen area had once been a tack room for the former stables. And now it has a kitchen and a sofa bed, which is very strange. But keep in mind, it's no longer an operational inn. So no one has to stay here. Although they do do overnight investigations, so maybe that's why they have a sofa bed in there. And John says that during some of the remodeling, builders found an old well under the floorboards, and people tried to theorize that it was used for dumping bodies of murder victims. Mm -hmm. Although that was never confirmed, and they never pulled up any bodies from the well, I think it's probably more likely that it was used for water. Because that's what wells are for. Yep. Not all of them are for the exorcism. Nope, for the ring. Not the exorcism. For the ring. Whatever. (laughs) Gosh. For the ring. The well floor and the space around the well has been a hotbed, hotspot for paranormal activity. It was so intense when John and his family lived there that he had to place a cross on top of the well of the mouth of the well. And then next to this kitchen is the men's kitchen, which might be the same thing. I don't know. It was very hard to tell on the photos and website and stuff. But people have heard the sounds of a baby crying, electronics constantly fail and die in this room, and it's in this body, it's in this room that the bodies of the sacrificed woman and boy were found, and the ancient grave remains open for visitors to look at. So when you go in, there's just a grave that's dug up inside the building. Oh, that's really creepy. What if you just happened upon it not knowing? You were just like an urban explorer and you just happened to go in here. I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah, but also horrifying if you didn't know the background and you just saw it. I'd be like, oh, my God, I have to call the police. That's true. It's just like a weird guy in his house. Like, it's his souvenir. (laughs) Yeah. Just the grave. And so John told the story. Apparently in 1997, June of 1997, a group of paranormal investigators were actually given permission to tear up parts of the concrete floor 
in order to look for an entrance of a sealed cellar, but instead, when they dug up, they found these two bodies, which dated all the way back to, to the Druids, which is crazy. That's wild. Could you imagine finding that? And also, think about, I mean, that's only one spot that they dug. Imagine digging up in any other parts of this inn or all the land. What would they find? Actually, John had a few psychics come to the house, and many of them said that there were many graves underneath the building and that they thought that there was a tunnel that led from the fireplace all the way to the church. Like if you dug behind the fireplace and under the fireplace, you would go find a tunnel that go went all the way up the hill to the church. But John chose not to investigate it further because he preferred that those things remain buried. And then there's another part of the inn called the Mayflower Barn, which is largely undeveloped, and it's haunted by a male spirit who likes blondes and will touch people inappropriately. And then there is a dark spirit that stands about seven feet tall and is very, very aggressive. And when the show Most Haunted came to the Ancient Ram Inn, the medium Derek Akora was possessed by an entity that told the team to visit the barn. And in this space, beneath the ancient beams, one person was set upon an invisible force that threw him to the floor and started beating and kicking him. And it all caught on camera. On camera? Yes. Did you and, watch it? Uh, no, I did not watch it. I was too scared. <laughs> I'd be too. I'm not watching it either until tomorrow morning. Especially after your ghost experience, we're not. I'm not doing any of that. Then the, an 18 year old ghost hunter had also been thrown to the floor by an unseen force. John has seen strange lights. He's been pinned down and pinned to the wall while like cleaning in that in that specific space. A father and son team once fled the space after witnessing a ghost rising up from the floor. And then the seven foot shadow man figure has also been seen in the barn. Some visitors have been thrown down the stairs in the inn by unseen hands. And the old grandfather clock in the inn is supposed to be haunted. It chimes randomly throughout the night and a human face will appear in the clock face. But as you try to like look closer, the face will just like disappear right in front of your eyes then there's the bishop's room which is said to be the most haunted room in the house and nine different ghosts have been seen in this room and when it was a functioning inn, many guests would refuse to stay in this room others would check into the room because they wanted to be part of the experience Mm -hmm. but they would run out in the middle of the night screaming there were reports of furniture flying about the room on its own and one time a medium was thrown down the corridor when she tried to open There's the door. There's so much like hardcore contact and aggression in this. I know. Story. Yes. And there are also, there were, there are many stories also of people feeling um, like they were violated in the night by incubus, succubus spirits. So it's horrible. It's terrible. I don't know why anyone would ever stay the night here. Um, people have seen strange mists. They've heard disembodied screams of a man. And it's believed that this man had been killed when his head was thrust into the fireplace at some point. And then people have seen a woman hanging from the ceiling. They've seen eerie ghost monks. They've seen a shepherd who has a dog. So that that's one nice positive spirit in the home. In 1999, Mark and Julie Hunt, who were ghost hunters, who actually photographed a mist, uh, like a mist spectral figure on the staircase, They reported extreme cold spots inside the bishop's room and watched dancing lights that resembled fireflies, even though there were no bugs in there. And they even caught an image of a hooded figure behind the dressing table. 
Also, people say, John said that when people would bring their pets and dogs into the bishop's room, their dogs would start to violently attack them, whereas their dogs would never have done that before. And then there were two investigators who spent the night there and had to have an exorcism performed on them. Okay, wait. So the dogs will then attack their owners, just like the woman who was accused of a witch, her cat started attacking her. That's true. So it's probably because they're so terrified of something in that room. There's also the attic, which John's daughter and husband spent many nights in, and then they would hear sounds of something heavy being dragged across the floor. And according to some, the weaver's attic, as it's called, is haunted by the ghost of an innkeeper's daughter who apparently was murdered in the loft sometime in the 1500s. And one medium named her Elizabeth after talking to her, but apparently she was murdered and left hanging on a beam in the attic. They believe her spirit is seen often. In general, many visitors have claimed to hear the screams and cries of children at night, which is why John and many of the innkeepers have put toys in and around the inn to keep the ghost children happy, and apparently it works. The crying has ceased now that the toys have been scattered around, so if a toy is in a room, or if there's at least one option of toy in the room, the cries will stop. But if a toy is removed from a room and there are no toys, crying will begin. So these kids just want toys. And many tourists try to take pictures of apparitions within the inn, and they have caught many pictures. If you Google ghosts caught on camera at Ancient Ram Inn, you will find many pictures. They've photographed strange orbs, shadows, beams of light. Visitors have also heard footsteps knocking on the walls, the sound of someone or something being dragged on the roof, and the occasional voice telling them to get out. And also when John, before John passed away, while he was caring for the inn, he placed Ouija boards all throughout the house. So guests could stay and play with the Ouija boards, which obviously would increase the amount of ghosts activity in the inn. And now currently the ownership is in his daughter's hands because John has since passed away and it is no longer operating as an inn, but you can stay overnight for paranormal investigations or you can go on ghost tours and they have a Facebook page with more information if anyone is crazy enough to be interested in it. I think it's like 400 euros to spend the night there. Yikes. And who, I don't want to. The risk is (laughs) being violated and so much bodily harm and it's beyond just getting spooked by like a phantom hand or some footsteps. It seems very extreme. Very, very extreme. I would not stay there. No, I'd never heard of that either. That's I hadn't either. That's why I was so shocked by it. It's a spooky one. It is a spooky one. Yikes. It's very, very spooky. Okay, this has been scary. This has been scary. And it's only going to get worse because this is the time when we read listener stories. Okay, this is from Sam. Hi, guys. My name is Sam, and I just started listening to your podcast today. And I love it. There are a couple of different things I wanted to talk about. Being from Massachusetts, I've had the ability to go to some very haunted places as well as take the time to search for these things. I'm currently listening to episode six and you're discussing traveling souls and reincarnation. You discuss that people travel together and I wanted to emphasize that belief. I went to a medium and she said the same thing. When we die, we all go back to a spiritual tree, so to speak, Mm. and everyone is part of a family tree. And the people who are your family are connected to you on branches. Those who you connect with in your life but are not your family 
or on a limb that your branch is a part of. And your soulmate may not always be your significant other in the life, in this life. It could be your child or best friend, or in Lizzie Borden's case, maybe it was her sister, Emma. Yeah. I just thought I would share this with you because I thought it was so interesting to hear you reiterate something that I have heard. And the medium I went to is out of Boston. It's the Beantown Medium. In terms of my ghost stories, there are a few. My freshman year of college, I found a friend who was really into ghosts and was part of a paranormal group out of Maine. He texted me one day and asked me if I wanted to go to the Lizzie Borden house. Of Hmm. course I did. As soon as we got there, things started to happen. My friend borrowed a professional camera from the school, so he was able to take better pictures. He opened the exposure of the camera on one shot, which allowed the camera to take a video, quote, however, the final product of the exposure was a still picture. He did this a few times, but only once did we catch a picture of something that we couldn't explain. For comparison's sake, I will describe a different picture first that produced a similar image, but not the same. The comparison image is a light streak. It was produced from someone with a headlamp on when walking down the stairs. In that picture, you can clearly see each step down that was taken, almost creating an illuminated staircase above the actual stairs. The picture that my friend caught, however, was not as pronounced. My friend caught a picture of an orb traveling down the stairs while no one was actually on the stairs. And as mentioned before, the picture of someone walking down the stairs was clearly defined as steps. This picture was flowier, if that makes sense. It kind of curves and zigzags in this pattern going from left to right as it travels up the stairs. Another experience that happened had to do with paranormal equipment. Attached is a photo of a dictionary device. It allows spirits to shuffle through a list of dictionary words to communicate. To my knowledge, Sam is not in the dictionary. However, that name presented itself to our group among the other evidence that we caught. A third thing that happened to me that night was that the Ouija board spelled out my name. I've never touched a Ouija board before. I just don't. However, the friend that I went with had kept asking who the board wanted to talk to, and it spelled Sam. I said, (laughs) no, I don't want to talk to you. And it just responded, yes. No. I walked away at that point. I saved the best for last, though. While I was sitting on the couch where Mr. Borden was murdered, I felt something bop the top of my head. Mind you, I was sitting on the couch all alone with the closest human to me sitting across the room. I know what you're thinking. She psyched herself out and she's only imagining things. But I was completely calm. I had actually been a little saddened because I hadn't had much activity as I was expecting to be there. So once I got touched, I immediately walked over to the room where our, quote, nerve center was. And I asked the guy manning the cameras if he had seen anything because I knew there was a camera pointed at that couch. He said that he had seen something. A ball of light had come down from the ceiling, connected with the top of my head, and then flew away. I was shocked. So I had been touched. And to this day, I really want to go back there and do another night there to see if that house remembers me because it was so insistent on talking to me. Sam, you are testing fate. Yep. Stay spooky, Sam. So much (laughs) testing fate. But oh my gosh, yeah. So wild. And it's like... That is scary. The first few experiences, like the the pictures taking, the picture taking where like the orb is zigzagging up the stairs and just stuff like that. 
I guess that's, I don't want to say it's normal because it's so exciting to capture something like that because it's paranormal activity, but yeah, it's just so different than actually feeling something touch you and then also having proof because the camera caught it in that same moment. And it probably caught her reaction. Well, I guess depending on what type of camera it was. Yeah. Oh, the Ouija board thing really freaks me out, though. I don't like that at all. Totally. Calling her name. I know. And then being like, yes, no, we must talk. Because it reminds me of the Zach story where the ghost was Zach. Yeah, he said, thank, thank you, you Zach. Ooh, nope, nope. Thank I you. know. Don't Just like it. call out your name. Although the boop, I guess, didn't seem that extreme. It's not like it shoved her. It just was like, boop, here I am. But it kind of, okay, it does to me seem like it's a residual-ish haunting or a ghost reenacting the act of the murder. Oh, my God. Like, on the head, too, being asked to death while she's laying on that couch. Oh, you're so right. I didn't even think of that. That freaks me out. That's The combination of all of it. Yikes, 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 yikes. Okay. What do you have for us? Okay. I have one from Chantilly, but she says, I know my name can be hard to pronounce, so maybe I pronounced it wrong. I don't know. So I'll call her C because she said to do that. So I have a story about an experience my sister and I had at the French Market Inn in New Orleans in July. It's a long one, but I think it's worth it. A group of girls, including my sister and I, went to NOLA in July for Essence Festival. My sister, her best friend, and I stayed at the French Market Inn the first and last night since we were arriving a day early and leaving a day later than everyone and didn't want to stay in a seven-person Airbnb with three people while the others weren't there. Makes sense. Save some money. My sister Charlie and her friend Nicole had gone to New Orleans a couple years earlier and stayed at the French Market Inn and they raved about it. So I was super excited to stay there. The hotel is beautiful and of course, being into spooky things, I googled the hotel while we were in the airport and read about a few hauntings on a blog. It didn't seem serious, but I mentioned it to my sister and her friend who are also into the paranormal. And they said that nothing happened when they were there the last time. So don't worry, but they were wrong. Our first night there, Nicole and I fell asleep pretty quickly after a short night on Bourbon Street, and Charlie stayed awake a while by herself. Suddenly, I'm woken up by Charlie saying, you guys are just going to sleep like nothing is happening? And the radio in the room is going off and it's playing white noise, and it's sometime after midnight when this is all happening. I'm so out of it, but I get up and I turn off the radio. But none of the buttons are allowing me to turn it off. We had to unplug it to get it to stop. Meanwhile, Nicole slept through all of this. We discussed it in the morning, but none of us were concerned. We go to check out and go to our Airbnb to meet the girls that were coming into town that day. And then we were excited to stay at the hotel again in a few days before we left. So a few days go by and we head back to the hotel for our final night. We joke that we hope the alarm clock doesn't go off again since we have an early flight. Earlier that day, we went to a candy shop and we got a few things to eat later that night. It's important that I say the candy was in a white paper bag and we all fell asleep and never ate them. I don't remember falling asleep, but I remember waking up and being terrified to open my eyes. I had a feeling of dread. All I wanted was for the sun to come up and to get out of that hotel room. But next thing I know, I hear the candy bag rustling as if someone is trying to slowly open the bag not to wake anyone up. In my head, I'm freaking out saying, do not look over there. Do not look over there. Do not look over there. I can't believe what I'm hearing. And I'm hoping that Charlie or or Nicole are awake and snacking. 
but I realize that I'm in the same bed as Charlie and I start freaking out. It continues to happen and I want everyone else in the room to wake up. So I nudge my sister Charlie and by the sound of her voice, she has been awake. As soon as she says, what? The bag stops. I asked her if she heard the bag moving and she replied no and told me to go back to sleep. I'm telling myself that I know what I heard and I cannot go back to sleep due to fear. I hear the bag move several more times. I'm so close to Charlie and just like a sister, she's telling me to scoot over and give her some room. I finally tell her that I'm so scared because I keep hearing a noise and that's when Charlie turns and tells me, I've been hearing it all night. I didn't want you to be scared, so I didn't tell you. I asked where Nicole was and she and Charlie responded that she thinks Nicole's asleep, but Charlie didn't want to open her eyes to look. So now we're both really scared. The bag continues to rustle, but then stops every time we talk. So we try to keep talking, but we're too scared to continue to talk. And at this point, I've had enough. The sun is up. The bag is still moving and I'm ready to get out of the room. The bag rustles again and I sit straight up in bed and yell, we gotta go. And we all pack our things as fast as we can and head out of the hotel into the lobby. We left all the candies in the room and told whatever was in there that they don't have to be quiet anymore and they can have it all. When we get to the lobby, my sister is telling the employees what happened last night and they're laughing at us. And then I mentioned that our alarm clock went off our first night and we were in a totally different room. They said that no one's ever mentioned anything happening, but it makes sense since the the hotel is so old. When we get back home, Nicole was telling her family about it and her brother searched the hotel and found out that the second floor had the most activity on it. They've changed the room numbers, but getting on the elevator, we could tell that our last night in the hotel, we were on the second floor. New Orleans is such a wonderful experience, but I don't think I'll ever stay at the French Market Inn again. I do, however, encourage everyone else to. It was beautiful, had a lovely staff, and is in a prime location. And I'm going back in the summer of 2019. Oh, let's know. Hopefully I can get some sleep this time. Ooh, yeah, let us know if anything happens to you this time. Because as we know, Nola is super haunted. I know. I really want to go. Every All my coworkers are like, how the heck have you not gone? I know. You're a ghost girl. You should be. You're a there. ghost girl. I'm very curious. I'm trying to I'm trying to picture what spirit would be the one to rummage through the candy. And at first I was like, oh, it's a little kid wanting to get candy. But if it were a little kid, it would probably just shove its hand inside the bag. So it must just be maybe it's an adult spirit. It's like, oh, I just want to I just want a little taste, but I don't want to wake candy. them up. And it's so sad, though, to think about, though, because they can't eat it. And that's why they're trying all night to get into that bag. Oh. People need to that make would freak ghost me out, though. candy. That's going to be our new enterprise. Ghost candy? Ghost candy. You can't see it, but they can eat it. Buy candy for your ghosts. It tastes delicious, even though you can't see it. <laughs> um I do think it's interesting that the hotel changed the floor numbers in the elevator. So you don't know what floor you're actually staying. That's really weird. And I feel like you go outside and figure it out. But hey, who knows? It's like, you know, hotels that are missing the 13th floor. Right. Which some people say it's because it's superstitious. And then others just say it's standard to have the service floor be on the 13th. But what do we know? Does anyone work at a hotel? Can anyone give us the answer Tell to this? Us. Yeah. My I, aunt works at a hotel. I should ask her. And my cousin who just texted me. I should ask her too. <laughs> yeah. Everyone tell us. I am curious if it's like they just skip over it or if there's like just, oh, it, I, it's more eerie to me that there's just like an ominous 13th floor that people can't go on and there's just weird things happening on that 13th floor. Oh my God. So creepy. A parallel universe. 
Ooh. Actually, when I was walking on that cliff walk with Talia, we kind of were like, are we in this weird glitch in the Matrix? Because when we, we walked past a group of people and they were having a conversation and we like caught bits and pieces of it. And then when we came back 20 minutes later, it was as if they had picked up in the exact same spot in their conversation. Oh. Like they were on the same topic and like it seemed like the next logical sentence after what we had just heard them say prior. Maybe they waited until you got back to continue. Oh, my God. Ooh, what if they were trying to murder us? <laughs> That's where you go to. The rich people by the beach. More like you are trying to take over their home. Yeah, I am. That's true. It's the other way around. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was a long episode, but it was, I think, a good one. <laughs> Great one. We had a ghost come visit us, so scary. We did, because probably scary. Lizzie Borden's like, stop talking about me. Or the many ghosts in ancient ram in. Probably, because you know. were talking, so it might be yours. But somehow they're coming after me. But anyway. Because you're more sus- susceptible to it. <sighs> Curse. Curse this <sighs> life. Curse this openness. No, no, no. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any ghost stories of your own, please email them to us at twogirlsonegostpodcast at gmail.com. I wanted to say thank you. We want to say thank you to Eric Foster at Upfire Digital for editing this long ass episode we appreciate you <laughs> and you know the drill it's a pyramid scheme tell everybody and if you do want to support us you can support us not only by telling people but also by rating and reviewing on itunes you can donate to our patreon you can attend any shows that we have or done with live shows for the meantime um and then what else we also have social media so join all of our social media follow yeah. us join our facebook group it's really fun Fun thing to be in. A lot of action. Everyone is very supportive in that group. I, I feel constantly moved by those people. Mm-hmm. They're wonderful people. You are all wonderful people. And it makes my heart so happy. Yes. Corinne, you are also a wonderful person. Happy birthday Uh-oh. to you. Thank you. Your birthday's coming Happy up soon, birthday. too. So, But this is about you. And we will see you on the other side. side. Very smooth.